welcome to the Case by Case podcast. You have Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain of Zyla Floyd Zadkovich here with you. Um, and in this podcast, we are going to take you through various legal cases um, and explore them, uh, unpack them, talk about them in a conversational way as we would kind of talk to our clients or each other um, and, and understanding how cases are. So welcome, uh, Callum. Hey, hey, Luke. Fun to be here. First episode. Yeah, first one up. Um, and we've got an interesting case to discuss today, which we'll get into in a second. Um, and as I say, the, uh, the, the process here will be that we'll, we'll talk about the, the facts of the case, we'll get into some of the legal arguments and talk about um, uh, the relevant principles arising from those cases and have a bit of um, bit of to and froing on them. So without uh, further ado, we'll get into it. Sounds good. Today's case is Alpha Marine Corp and Min Metals Logistics. This is an English commercial court decision uh, which arose on an appeal from an arbitration uh, and is an interesting shipping case. Callum, would you like to uh, give some headline facts on this one? Yeah, so let's just let's, let's talk through what happened. Um, essentially, why, why did they end up in front of the court um, arguing about these, these points of law? So the, the claimant was the vessel owner, Alpha Marine, um, and the defendant was the charterer of the, um, of the, of the vessel. And they'd chartered the vessel on a, a time charter party um, and they then onward chartered the vessel on a voyage charter party um, to a fantastically named subcharterer, General Nice Resources, Hong Kong Limited. Um, and the... It was a shame, actually, that they um, abbreviated that throughout this judgment. It was, yeah, because that's one of the best named companies that I've come across. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so the vessel was... Uh, scheduled to leave Richards Bay and it did leave Richards Bay in South Africa and almost as soon as it left it had a grounding incident um, and that caused a huge amount of loss um, which didn't it doesn't actually come into the decision at all um, save for the owners alleged that charterers were in breach of the obligation under a charter party to nominate safe ports they said that Richards Bay had, had not been a safe port um, and therefore they suffered all of these, lo- all of these losses um, and as part of the uh, as, as part of their attempts to kind of obtain security for all of the losses that they said charters owed them, they tried to um, essentially intercept payment of freight. They they said that the subcharters, the General Nice Company, owed freight directly to owners, um, and and they said they did so on the basis of, of the uh, bill of lading between the vessel owners and uh, General Nice Company. Um, and that really is what the case was looking at. The, the, reason, that, the reason that this was an issue in this case is that um, general the, the, the events all happened in 2013 and then there was a period of a few years where General Nice Company were essentially working out who to pay and they said, we're happy to pay freight. So uh, stepping back under the, under the voyage charter party, General Nice Company owed money to charterers. Um, or to owners under the bill of lading and they said 
you know, we're happy that we owe, that we owe money, that we, that we have to pay for the freight, but we don't know who we're supposed to pay because owners say that they're entitled to it and charterers say that they're entitled to it. Um, and this, this kind of wrangle seemed to go on for a few years and ultimately it was resolved by, um, by this kind of plan to pay the money into escrow. Um, but while the money was being paid into escrow, General Nice Company uh, went under, went bust. So you had the situation where that pot of money had been massively reduced. Um, and charterers said, charterers counterclaimed against owners on the basis that um, if in, in the normal run of things, charterers said we would have been paid our freight, we would have been paid it properly by General Nice Company. Um, but because owners got involved, and charterers said owners got involved unlawfully, they weren't entitled to start demanding payment of freight from General Nice Company. Um, because of owners' involvement, charterers argued, they weren't paid the full amount. Um, and it was, it, was char- it was owners' involvement that, that cost them the ability to uh, be paid the entirety of the freight, and therefore owners owed, owed the balance to charterers. Um, so in some ways, a, a very typical situation, but also in some ways a, a slightly odd one, a, a very typical s- structure for, a, for shipping contracts, but the, the, the oddity that meant that kind of caused all the grief was the fact that before all of the freight was paid into escrow, uh, subcharters went well. Subcharter became insolvent, and they weren't able to pay the, the entire amount into escrow. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're you're right. It, it's in some ways it, it looks like a fairly typical uh, and is a typical arrangement here, um, it, but it throws up some very interesting questions. When I first read the facts of the case, um, I was concerned for owner's position. Without Before I got into it and, and understood the, the real legal issues at play um, and thought, well, actually, there's, there is a, um, a concern of firing off lien notices too early um, and, and misdirecting them or... Sending them, sending them prematurely when there are no sums actually due under the charter party. And there's, right. there's like an instinctive, um, well, you know, there's an instinctive reaction to combine the lien rights that you may have to exercise a lien over sums due and this concept of um, requesting that freight is being paid directly to the owners and not to the charters under a bill of lading. And there's, and there's a lot in there, so it might be worth stepping back and just looking at all the contracts in turn um, so, so we, can go, we can go back through each of these. So at the top you have this time charge party between, between owners and charterers and that's essentially owners uh, leasing the vessel to, uh, to the charterers who are then entitled to use it you know, to make money. That's the, that's the purpose, that's why charterers have, 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 are, yeah. are paying higher. Um, and then you have the voyage charge party, by which charterers essentially say to uh, the shippers, you can have some space on this vessel between two ports, and you have to pay us for it. And then you have the bill of lading, where owners say to the, the shippers, we're going to carry the cargo from A to B. And really the, 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 the issue in this case is when can owners step in and say to shippers, you owe us the money that you were going to pay to charterers, because we have this contract with you under the Bill of Lading. So we see this uh, come up in uh, many 
cases actually where um, operators, ship owners, charters will come to us um, and they'll be very much focused on the um, charter parties that they've entered into and that have been um, negotiated and, and they know very well. And they're not so um, concerned or, or thinking about the bill of lading as a contract. And what are the rights that the carrier may have against the cargo interest under the bill of lading contract? Because a bill of lading is a contract of carriage uh, as well as, you know, it, it's, it's other um, uh, forms. And it, that aspect or that, that contract opens up um, not only various issues, but it creates a number of um, uh, options for parties. And, and we see this in, in the lean scenario. We see it in, in um, this type of scenario where owners are stepping in to um, demand freight be paid directly to them under a bill of lading. We also see it in the context of charterers. Um, having difficulties receiving freight from sub-sub-charters and then looking to the head owners under a bill of lading to um, uh, to seek to recover um, uh, freight uh, from cargo interests on their behalf. So I think that's an interesting point because it, it cuts both ways. The when When you first read this decision, it feels like owners have this separate entitlement just to jump in and say to charterers, you've arranged this sub-charter party, you've arranged this sub-fixture, it's with your onward contact, your, your customer, but we're actually going to jump in and take the money. And at a very high level, this judgment makes it, or at least clarifies, um, that that's something that owners are entitled to do. Um, and that seems like it gives owners an enormous degree of power over charterers in the chartering chain. But what you mentioned there is, is is a good point, which is owners may do this for the benefit of other parties in the chain as well. It's not it, it it's not necessarily a legal remedy that charterers that sorry, the owners wield over charterers and they have this right to take hire that's otherwise due to charterers. It's also a, a it's also something that owners can do to jump in and to say we're going to take freight. Um, from from the bottom of the chain, and we're going to use it in satisfaction of, of charterers paying hire to us, or, or in satisfaction of charterers' obligation to pay hire, um, which could be to charterers' benefit if, if one of the parties further down the chain is facing insolvency, or if there's a some kind of award that they're not going to be able to meet. Yeah, I like that point. Um, I, I like that point, Callum. Uh, well, coming on to the the legal issues in this um, in this case and, and, and what it was all about, um, it, it's actually a, a, an implied term case. Uh, and looking at the the head charter party, so the charter party between owners and charterers, and assessing whether there's an implied term in that contract, which restricts owner's ability under the bill of lading to collect freight at any time. Uh, and and the, the decision turns on whether that type of term, and if so, what is the term, um, should be implied or not. And we've got some, some recent uh, uh, Supreme Court um, uh, jurisprudence on this, uh, on implied terms, the Marks and Spencer case, 
which is quite useful and I think sets out um, clearly what the um, the principles are here and, and we can get into that in some detail in a moment. But that's what this whole case is about, is about uh, impl- implying a term. And I think it, one, of the, one of the comments I'd make at the outset is implying a term is subject to its own legal test. It's different rules to um, const- construing what express words of a contract mean. It's not there to weigh up perceived uh, uh, equities or inequities in the contract. It is a, it is a regime for whether uh, an implied term should be implied either out of necessity, business necessity, or obviousness. And, and sometimes those two concepts go together, um, but they are alternative bases upon which you can imply a term. Uh, and th- this whole case really turns on uh, whether um, a, a term restricting owner's ability to collect freight at any time um, should be implied in the contract or not. And I think the fact that they were debating three um, terms is, a, is of itself um, uh, a factor militating against the implication of a term which, which the court noted um, and um, I, I think that's a, it's an interesting point. Yeah, it is, and I think you're, as is often the way with the, with um, these kind of legal disputes when they get to the, the stage of the court, you end up with a fantastically complicated background to the, a very simple question, and the only question that the court had to answer is, does this term meet the test, meet the legal test for an implied term? If it does, it's an implied term. If it doesn't, it's not. Um, and as you say, one of the problems was that the implied term could be put one of three different ways, um, which suggests that it doesn't meet the test of being so obvious that it would necessarily be incorporated or that it's so obvious that I'm not, I'm not quoting directly from the Marks and Spencer's case, but um, essentially when, when something is so obvious that it is, it, it's, it's in there by, ne- by necessity, then... Uh, it will be an implied term, and if you and if you're having to um, change the term, or if the term's capable of three different definitions, then it's unlikely that it's obvious to anyone which one of those definitions is the um, is the correct one. Uh, therefore, meaning that none of them are likely to succeed. So I think now is maybe a good point just to look at those three implied terms um, that were said to exist, and to do so, it's probably helpful to step back. Um, and just recap that first you have the, the head charter party and under that head charter party owners have delegated to charterers the right to collect um, freight that's part of the operation of the uh, head charter party so what, what uh, charters were arguing for here the implied terms they were arguing for was essentially an implied term limiting owners rights to revoke that authority to collect freight um, and there were three different ones they put they put forward, or there were three different ones that, that were kind of considered by the uh, by the judge. The first they called the all freight implied implied term, um, and that essentially said that where there had been a uh, a failure to pay, where there was some payment due from charterers to owners, then there was an implied term that owners were entitled to step in and 
collect the freight. All right. In fact, it was the other way around. It was um, there was an implied term that owners would not step in to collect the freight unless there had been some breach. And if there had, then owners' right to collect the freight would be the right to collect all of the freight, hence the all freight implied term. The next one was the all freight sum identified implied term, which starts from the same premise, which is that owners were not entitled to revoke that authority to uh, or to countermand that authority to collect freight unless there had been unless there was some payment due um, and also that that payment had to be identified that's the all freight sum identified term essentially owners are not entitled to countermand the authority um, or the right of charterers to collect freight unless there was some amount due that could be identified and the third was called the dollar for dollar um, or, or it should really be the pound for pound um, implied term, which again started from the same premise. There was no entitlement for owners to countermand the authority of charterers to collect freight. In this case, they were only entitled to do so up to the amount um, that they that they were owed by charterers and no more. And the owners said, um, well, essentially the owners said, as we discussed, that if there are three possible implied terms, then none of them can meet the meet the required hurdle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the the um, decision after laying out the the various arguments that owners and charters were making on these three alternative um, terms, the the court then went through um, uh, the the process, I suppose, of um, of an owner. Um, collecting freight under a bill of lading and that that's a well-established right um, that an owner can under the bill of lading collect freight we know that from the the Werner uh, v Dean and the bulk Chile case um, and this is an interesting kind of point that I'm coming on to I think and one that it, it is not often discussed but when the charterer um, is uh, being paid freight by cargo interests as per charter party, and that, that writing we, we know is often on, um, on the bill of lading, that freight to be paid as per charter party. Uh, what's actually happening there is that the charterer is um, a, a collection agent, if you like, for the owners on freight. And so uh, it can be revoked at any time. Uh, and it can be, well, sorry, it can be revoked prior to payment. If payment has been made, then you can't, um, you can't revoke that collection, right? But the owner, prior to the charterer collecting freight, can step in and say, no, we don't want you to pay the charterer, we want you to pay, um, we want you to pay um, us directly. And there's principles and authorities that support the proposition that when the owner does that, when the owner steps in and says to the bill of lading holder, no, don't pay the charterer, pay um, the carrier, pay us as the owners, uh, then if they receive a surplus on what they're, they're owed as freight, um, then they have to account to the charterer for any surplus. And that's a, that's a well-established um, principle. It was one of the main reasons that the owners argued and the court agreed with them 
as to why it's not obvious that there should be an implied term uh, fettering or impacting on the owner's ability to, um, to collect freight prior to, to payment. So just drilling, drilling down on that then, we, what we've got is a, we've got an agreement between owners and charterers where charterers are going to pay a daily rate to owners to use the vessel. And then we've got an agreement between charters and subcharters, where subcharters are going to pay a set rate of freight to charterers. And then we've also got an agreement involving owners and subcharters directly, in which owners have this this, uh, this right to take that freight payment. And the the kind of complexity arises where what in what circumstances are owners able to kind of countermand that authority that they've given to charterers to collect the freight? And, and what, what's the limit of, of, of that authority of owners to, to kind of jump in and say, actually, no, now we're taking this money back from you? And that's, the, that, that's where the question, I think, gets, gets really interesting. And, and the, the point that you, that you mentioned about this, this, right, this, this requirement to account for any excess is first off it's it it makes a lot of sense and um it, without that obligation this wouldn't make very much sense at all i don't think because owners could essentially get paid and, from charters and then jump in and get paid from subcharters um and i don't think you can just rely on the good conscience of uh, of, of the commercial world to avoid that situation so so you need that that requirement to um uh, to account for any for any surplus but once you have that requirement to account for any surplus, then, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, I think there's there's a potential positive there for for charterers where they're faced with some kind of impecunious uh, subcharter or subcontracting party because owners have that ability to jump in, take the payment, and then account for any surplus back down the chain and essentially satisfy the debt of, of charterers. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And w- w- when you step back and look at uh, why why this is the case like well, looking back again going back to the, and we, we I know Callum you and I regularly do this on our cases um, when we're looking at them but if we go back to first principles and the contract structure here the charterers and even the subcharters for that matter unless they are the cargo interests don't really have much to do with the actual voyage itself they, they, they do and they don't uh, um, if I can put it like that, the, the contract of carriage uh, that as in the bill of lading that um, is, is issued and then endorsed uh, or passed on by the shippers, once it leaves the charterer's hands, it is the contract of carriage. And you, so you have a contract between the carrier and the cargo interests. The carrier is the one in control of the ship. And the cargo interests are the cargo owners saying, you know, we want our cargo to get to the other side of the world. Um, and the, the carrier wants to be able to ensure that they're going to set off um, on this long voyage, incur a lot of um, uh, time, expense, uh, fuel costs, crew costs, you know, you name it, uh, get to the other end and they want to know that they're going to get paid. And so for, from a uh, a priority or a, what's the primary um, uh, reason for this type of structure, it's because the carrier wants to ensure that they're going to get paid the freight for carrying this, these goods. 
And so if something happens in the charter party chain that disrupts um, the freight payment or hire coming all the way through to the owners, they need to have a mechanism to make sure that they're going to get paid. That's why they've got a lien right. That's why they can hold on to the cargo and say, no, we're not going to give it to you, um, original bill of lading holder, until we get our money. And that, that principle, I think, kind of runs through this whole decision. It's not overt. It's not, um, it, it's not you know, the principle relied upon. Uh, it's more nuanced than that. But, but the overarching um, principle for me is that um, the bill of lading contract almost has a, a primary role in this, in this scenario. It does seem to elevate that contract between owners and subcharterers. I say elevate it, it's maybe not elevate it, just it, it really brings it into sharp focus. That there's, just looking at it from the other side for a second, there was an argument that was run, um, and I think it's an argument that deserves some exploring, um, where charterers said that an obligation to account for any surplus isn't enough to protect time charterers. Um, so... And, and what they're envisaging is the situation that happened here, the ex this exact situation, where owner has, the owners have jumped in and they've said, we want to take all of the money from subcharterers. Don't worry, charterers, we're going to account for you for any surplus. But in the meantime, they've, they've really kind of made a hash of the normal collection process of freight. And in, that, in, in the intervening years, while all this was sorted out, subcharters have become insolvent. And as a result, there's no freight. And Charter said there needs to be some possibility of an action for damages where the owner intervenes in circumstances where money was actually not due to them. Um, and one thing that I'd be interested in your view on, Luke, is that is the judge's response to that. And the judge said that, he, that essentially he felt that if, if it was clear in law, if it was clear that owners retained this right to, to, take, the, to take the freight from subcharterers albeit with an obligation to account for any surplus, then it would, be, it would be less likely for there to be disputes between owners and charterers because there would be more of an opportunity for owners and charterers to agree the, 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 the extent of owners', owners right to, uh, to kind of grab that, that uh, freight under the subcharge party. And I wondered if you would anticipate as a result of this case, seeing that kind of wording coming into charge parties now, where there is an express limitation, given that there was no, that we've now, we now know there's not to be an implied limitation on, on that right, whether you think there's going to be an express limitation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I think the short answer is yes. It's one of my takeaways from this decision. And uh, for those of you who will, will listen to more of these podcasts, um, in this, this case by case series, um, we'll explain more that uh, Callum and I don't talk about the case before we jump on. We read it, we make a few notes here and there, um, and then the idea is that we, uh, we jump on to the, to the recording and um, see what we made of it and bounce some ideas around. And that was one of my real takeaways from this is that you, 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 we need to keep going back to what what is the court being asked to do in this case? The court is being asked to imply a term. The court is not being asked to fix deficiencies in drafting, um, and that's not what the implied term test is about. The implied te term test is about um, two 
bases upon which you can imply a term into these commercial contracts. One is business necessity, and that's where the contract would lack commercial coherence um, and that type of concept. It, 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 needs to be, it needs to be necessary. And then the second uh, 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 concept or, or basis upon which you could imply a term um, is that it, it needs to be obvious. Like it, it needs to be something that obviously this is, this is right. And putting aside the fact that the parties came up with three formulations of the term and that, that's, that points to uh, this type of term not being obvious, I think the, the more fundamental point is that this, this could be cured um, through better drafting. And it's not obvious that the argument that you've just put runs in charter's favour. You could argue, as I was going to before, that owners should have an unfettered right to collect freight. So let's imagine a different scenario where um, uh, owners can see that charters are going to have problems and they have good grounds for suspecting that freight will not be paid. Um, But the the freight provision or the hire provision kicks in um, 30 days later uh, and they've got to sit there waiting until the invoice becomes due and they're not paid before they can exercise their rights under the bill of lading. That, to me, feels like um, that's prejudicing owner's position considerably and you would need express language to do that. You, that would need to be something where owners and charterers are sitting down um, effectively and, and allocating the, the, the risk of that um, issue one way or the other. It doesn't strike me um, as, um, as, as obvious that it should be owners who have some restriction on their ability to collect freight. Uh, the other point on this is, and I thought this is um, a, a good uh, quote to read out, is that um, this is the, the Philips Electronique and um, British Sky Broadcasting case going back to implying a term, and that's, it is necessary for a term to be implied that it should be clear what the term is and that it is capable of clear expression. The term that is being asked to be uh, implied here is not clear. There's good debate about what that term should be, um, what are the limits of it, whether it's an all freight, an all freight, some identified or a dollar for dollar. Personally, I would have liked this to have been in um, in sterling, so it was pound for pound. But there we are. I think dollar for dollar is still pretty good too. Uh, but when no matter which of those three you look at, it's it's not it, it it's not um, clear and capable of clear expression. It, well, it is with expressed language, but as a matter of implication or obviousness, it's not. Yeah, exactly, and that and that goes right back to the to the simplicity of the case it's, it's complicated and it goes to these complicated points of new of, of shipping law but at its heart when the and you can kind of imagine that when the judge sat down to write this judgment the decision was made relatively simple by the legal structure regarding an implied term it's just a case of putting that putting the question through the matrix does do we have here a term which meets any of this any of the required thresholds for it to be implied into the contract and the answer to that question, I think, is no. I think, and I think the judge is right. Yeah, I- I- exactly.
Exactly. So to uh, to round up this discussion, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, Callum, uh, it's a really interesting case to kick things off in this podcast series. The, the principle of this case, in many ways, as you say, is rather narrow and straightforward. It's about implication of a term. Uh, and it's not, in this case, it was not necessary or obvious that um, owner's right to collect freight under a bill of lading should be um, curtailed in the, the head charter party. Um, the parties could do that if they um, agreed to it expressly, and you could certainly find language to, to, to try to do that. Um, picking one of the three uh, uh, types of terms that were, that were discussed in this case. Uh, but what the case actually does is it highlights some, some really interesting issues around the structure of uh, shipping contracts, the structure of contracts between charter parties and bills of lading, and um, where the intersection is between those, how they interact, and and really identify um, how important the right of owners to be able to collect freight under a bill of lading is. And we didn't even get into how this overlaps with lien rights and or, or, or is supported by lien rights, uh, where the owners can, can exercise a lien to ensure that they're, um, they're, they're paid their freight and whether the charterers could um, could, through employment orders, ask the owners to recover freight under a bill of lading, which we've seen in some other cases. There's a, there's a fascinating debate around this whole structure and how this works and, and the concept of a charter being a collection agent for the owners, but does the agency work in the other direction as well? Um, and, and a lot of this is actually um, uncharted. There's there's some good commentary on it uh, in the leading text in in time charters and um, in Aikens on bills of lading, but actually a, a number number of these points are um, are not clearly uh, set out in the authorities. So a really interesting area of law. Um, I've enjoyed the discussion. Any any final parting comments from you, Callum? None from me. Um, it's safe to say. Yeah, thank you very much. That was very, very enjoyable, very enjoyable read and a very enjoyable conversation. Good stuff. Let's uh, pick it up on the next one. And thank you all for listening. And we hope you uh, join us in the rest of this series. 